Man, the erotic birthing person. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. It's great to be back with you after some time off. We took a little break. Anna Kate, our wonderful producer of these podcasts, and one of your favorite of the three AMI staff members, went and got married. So she took some time off for the honeymoon, and I'm blaming the delay completely on her and congratulating her at the same time. Actually, it's totally my fault. Anyway, great to be back with you. Great to be thinking of creative titles for these podcasts. That's always fun. And today we're dipping into a buzzworthy class. Uh, It's Matthew Waltz, professor of philosophy at University of Dallas and senior fellow at the Albertus Magnus Institute in our fellowship. And today we're going to be listing in on his class on the philosophy of man, in particular, diving into Plato's symposium. So the title was completely accurate. Man is a birthing person and a wonderful one at that. Stick around for that. And in the meantime... If you want to hear the whole course, these are, of course, eight-week courses in the fellowship. We give you little snippets, but any fellow donating at least 25 bucks to the cause gets unlimited access to an ever-growing vault of video content. The complete courses and discussions are available for you and your friends when you have access to AMI all access. So 25 bucks a month goes to a great cause. Frankly, if if uh, you just want access and don't want to give 25 bucks, give us an email. We'll make it happen as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast and thank you for your five-star reviews. It does so much to help our work and uh, your support is always invaluable. We're growing big time, approaching 700 fellows in the fellowship and you can become one today if you're not at magnusinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Waltz. Enjoy the course. So as we begin every week, let's uh, begin with this beautiful prayer that opens Augustine's Confession. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great are you, O Lord, and worthy to be strongly praised. Great is your power, And of your wisdom there is no number. And man, a certain portion of your creation, wants to praise you. Man, carrying around his own mortality, carrying around the testimony of his own sin, the testimony that you resist the arrogant. And yet man, a certain portion of your creation, wants to praise you. You rouse us so that it delights us to praise you because you have made us toward yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So we are in week five. We sort of turn the corner on the middle of the class. And in some ways, the symposium uh, is at the center of this course. And maybe uh, that'll make a lot more sense as we move along and why why it's there. I want to begin tonight. I'm going to uh, share my screen with a, a PowerPoint. But I want to begin by 
reminding us a little bit of where we are in our treatment of the symposium. <clears throat> so hopefully some of what I say here at the beginning will remind us a little bit of the things we spoke about last week. I'm hoping we'll remember some of what we talked about last night. In particular, it will be helpful for us as I bring up this slide that hopefully looks a little familiar to you to remember a little bit about what an erotic speech is. That's what each of the symposiasts give. In some ways, they put their arrows into speech. I love the phrase that Plato uses there, a logos eroticos, right? Uh, it's a speech that is, as I suggest here, erotic or arrows infused, as if in vocal sound, in their speech, they are putting on display their own love, their own desire, their deepest desire even. As I suggest here, looking at it from a more objective point of view, they're telling the world what's best or most important to me. But in some ways, this is not, these speeches are more personal. They're not objective in the sense of a treatise, but they really are telling us what embodies what's best or most important. This is a really bodily work for Plato. Um, and those who think that Plato presents an anthropology that is fundamentally dualistic, I think really would struggle to fit the anthropology of the symposium into that view. So I want you to think about each of these speeches as something like a personal witnessing, almost a confession as to what's divine for that speaker, what embodies what's most authoritative in life and therefore gives ultimate direction to life. Um, and that ties it back into the theme of the course, right? In some ways, we are now trying to think about where do we come from and where are we going? Now that we have some sense of whether we are unified as a sort of in a structural way as a being. I should maybe just make one brief comment in this regard. Uh, you may have noticed that the, the dialogue as a whole begins in media res, you might say, right? <laughs> uh, if you read just the opening line of the dialogue, Apollodorus is speaking, and he says, in my opinion, I am not unprepared for what you ask about. For just the other day, when I was on my way home, blah, 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 blah. But notice, we don't know what that question was that he was asked, <laughs> right? So there's a pre-existing question to the dialogue that is never, in fact, stated in the dialogue. And in fact, we really never find out exactly what that question was. I think that structure of the dialogue says something about the very nature of Eros itself, right? Each of us exists with the presupposition of Eros, already presumed, already some seeking, some questioning, some questing, some searching is already taking place. And um, each of us, you might say, presumes that. None of us exists, in fact, without a pre-existing eros to our life, right? Each of our lives comes from, in some sense, eros. And so I want us to think about that in terms of those questions that demarcate uh, human life that John Paul II 
state. There's a way in which Plato has has structured this dialogue that there's already a pre-existing seeking to the dialogue itself, which in some ways mirrors, I would argue, the the pre-existent eros that is prior to every one of our uh, existences as human beings. We are all the products of eros in some sense, right? As offspring of a male and a female. So the dialogue sort of presents to us a kind of vision of eros from the beginning as an underlying seeking that is present in and through the dialogue itself. And then, as we talked a little bit about last time, this is deeply mediated, right? We get Apollodorus's account, who heard his account from Aristodemus, who told his account to someone else. So it's not just that Eros pre-exists, but it's also mediated through a whole, I mean, you might think of it as almost representing something like our own existence as arising from mediated Eros, right? In some ways, human existence is is present in the world as uh, a mediated erotic phenomenon, or at least a phenomenon that arises out of mediated eros. And that, and partly what Plato is exploring, especially in his speech that we'll look at pretty carefully in a few minutes, you know, that's, that's where we begin with a sort of pre-given inclination towards all sorts of things that arises from the fact that we are the product of pre-given inclinations, right? And the question is, where's that all headed? Last week, we looked at some of the answers to those questions as to what is on the other end of that fundamental inclination of the human heart, eros. And today we're gonna look at Socrates' answer to that question, which he learned from Diotima. And then you might remember, um, you know, on this slide for us to really think about the way in which at least I want to suggest to you some uh, connection with the scriptures here. Like there's some sense in which what we speak does come out of the abundance or overflow of our own hearts, right? Somehow all of us in our speech are putting our heart on display uh, for better or for worse than my dad. Also recall, this should go quickly, I hope, that the, when we talked about the poets last time over against the uh, sophists, the poets try to point to something beyond what is, you might say, contained in the secular world, right? They're trying to, through myth, help us to surpass opinion, convention, and science by trying to point to, through myth, through Aristophanes' myth of our missing half, or um, or Agathon's myth of the, the beautiful god of Eros who stands in a certain kind of, enjoys a certain perfection and youthfulness. All of that is some attempt to, to communicate what is not directly accessible by means of images and metaphors and the like that are accessible because then you can actually open yourself up to what is in principle prior to all experience, right? And we talked a little bit about last time the difference, well, a lot bit last time about the difference between comedy and tragedy in that regard. Comedy focuses on what is common, vulgar, and necessary, especially sex as in some ways the most 
fundamental reality in the world, in the human world, whereas Agathon points to what is rare, excellent, and extra, the heroic, as what is sort of best displays the nature of the human. So is the human more a being that is subject to the necessities, especially the necessity of sexual appetite, but also the necessity of eating and going to the bathroom and all that, all that comedy sort of revels in? Or is the human most on display in what is rare, excellent, and extra? Is that more the essence of what it means to be human? And the tragic and the comic poets give divergent answers to that, that sort of anthropological question. I also called your attention last week, this is sort of getting us closer into what's new for this week, that Aristodemus at the end of the dialogue tells us about how the whole symposium ended, right? Remember this text near the end where Aristodemus tells us on awakening, or Apollodorus tells us what Aristodemus told him, on awakening he saw that the rest were sleeping or had gone away, but Agathon, Aristophanes, and Socrates were the only ones still awake they were drinking from a large cup passing from left to right. Socrates was conversing with them. And Aristodemus said he did not remember the other points of the speeches, for he was not only absent at the start, but was dozing. However, the chief point he said was that Socrates was compelling them to agree. That sounds like reasoned arguments, right? Compelling them to agree that the same man should know how to make comedy and tragedy which apparently neither Agathon nor Aristophanes are capable of, and that he who is by art a tragic poet is also a comic poet. They were compelled to admit this, though they were not following too well and were nodding. Aristophanes went to sleep first, and then when it was already day, Agathon. So the tragedian stands closest to the philosopher in capturing the essence of man, it seems to be that's the suggestion. And yet, as we'll see in what Diatima teaches Socrates, they cannot be ignoring the comic dimension of human life. So Agathon, sorry, Aristophanes falls away, Agathon falls away, and the only awake human being at the end of this the drinking party is Socrates himself. And the suggestion in this near-the-end passage is that somehow philosophy is capable of, of uniting tragedy and comedy in a unified account of what it means to be human. Okay, so that takes us to, or makes us, I think, want to figure out what is going on in Socrates' erotic speech. And what I want to do uh, in, in the next few minutes is lay, I'm going to talk about this speech in four phases. You know, I want to do this as quickly as possible because I'd rather get to a discussion, but I think it's helpful to see the, the speech as a whole and the different, what I'm calling phases of it. There are different steps in it. Remember, this is what Socrates has learned from Diatima. Diatima is a priestess that he meets at one point, and when he meets her, we are told, or at least Socrates reveals that he, or he tells this to Agathon, that he was very much like Agathon when he was a young man. So 
partly what Socrates is saying is that he, as a young man, had a tragic disposition, you might say, a tragic intellectual orientation, right? And I almost want to suggest that Socrates thinks that that's absolutely necessary, in fact, to become philosophic, right? You have to have some appetite and some desire to see the human primarily or chiefly through the lens of what's heroic and what is excellent and rare. Even though he learns from Diatima that you cannot, in doing so, leave behind altogether the comic elements of life. Somehow the comic elements have to be undertaken by you into that tragic trajectory. And that's really worth thinking about in terms of, um, of what, what I might call the requirements to be philosophic, what the importance of tragedy is in the development of an imagination that is sort of properly disposed to philosophy. And especially with the young, if we're, if we're educating the young and the importance for them to experience tragedy and to see heroic action right, as exemplifying something that is absolutely essential to the human and in some sense more essential than what is comic in life, even though both are required. So the first phase of Socrates' erotic speech answers this question as to whether Eros is divine. And as you might imagine, and I think we mentioned this briefly last week, Socrates doesn't think so but every other speaker so far in the symposium has in some way or another divinized Eros. And as I suggest here for many people, and maybe for all those speakers, Eros or love seems to be an untouchable or sacred zone of life. It is not to be questioned, right? It is in that sense, divine. Eros does not need to be justified. It is what it is, period. And for a sort of uh, contemporary refer <laughs> reference there, right? Love wins, right? Love is love and love wins. There's no, there's no way to bring to bear on love some standard according to which it can be judged, right? And that's the whole question of whether Eros is in fact divine. And it's funny that no one in the dialogue up to this point has questioned the divinity of Eros. All of them presume that the love that they have or feel or, or will is absolute. As we saw last week, this is partly why Socrates questions Agathon, precisely to point out the non-divinity of Eros, right? He gets Agathon to agree that Eros always involves lack. It is imperfect in itself. Now, this is very evident in the experience of eros or love when we're pursuing something. But Socrates, if you recall, argues with Agathon that it's true even when we possess what we love, because even then we do not have it yet forever, right? Which is what we really want. So even in the possession, there still holds out to us the entire future as not yet had. So we can never escape eros as always involving some lack even in the possession of the good that we want and this allows socrates to come up with an initial count an, an initial account of eros eros is the lack of the goods being one's own always 
This is something like his first definition of Eros, right? And notice, as I suggest here, it is simultaneously comic and tragic because the same definition can be applied to both desire and enjoyment. So in a certain way, we get a definition that spans the two, the comic and the tragic manifestations of love. And as I think we just briefly touched on uh, last week, this is how Socrates reveals what I think Plato thinks is the, the most fundamental mistake we make about Eros or love, namely identifying the very nature or essence of love with one of its appearances or with our consciousness of it. Usually we identify love with the most obvious appearance, right? our experience or consciousness of desiring what we don't yet fully possess, falling in love or in loveness, right? That's what we usually identify love with. But the truth that Socrates wants to articulate is that love underlies both the pursuing and the ongoing enjoyment. Both are manifestations of a fundamental principle in us called love or eros. So what is Eros then? Can we come up uh, beyond that initial definition? Can we come up with something a little more precise? And this is where Socrates from Diatima presents a poetic image for us, right? He's already learned the non-divine status of Eros from Diatima. This is the first insight he gains from here. Eros is not divine but is relational or relative in its very being, right? It is a lack of, right? It always involves a lack, which means it's always relational and not absolute. Diatima spells this out when she tells a myth about the birth and ancestry of Eros. And I want to suggest to you we can glean from this something like the DNA of Eros. And if you uh, recall from the reading, she tells this story of Eros and the birth of Eros, right? Uh, as a kind of tangent, maybe, uh, I don't want to go too far on this, but it'd be interesting to think whether these are the kinds of stories that Plato is fine being told in the city, because in some ways they, uh, they don't mislead us, perhaps, about the gods, because there's something about this story that is, oh, what would I say, uh, sufficiently symbolic not to fool us about the anthropomorphization of the gods. Um, but it's interesting that he is willing to tell a myth at this point. He's willing to become, at the behest of Diatima, he's willing to be a poet. But it's, a, it's not the most exciting story but it is some attempt in imagery to bring out this genealogy of Eros, right? And the genealogy is such that poros, which can mean something like resource or uh, actually the English word poor, like P-O-R-E, like the pores in your skin comes from this root. So it means resource or or like a way through, right? A way to get there, if I could put it that way, a pathway or a passageway or a wherewithal. 
So the father of Eros is resource or wherewithal or a sort of passageway. The mother is poverty, and they give rise to a son, but Theotima calls attention to the fact that the father of Poros, and therefore the grandfather of Eros, is Metis, which means intelligence or cleverness or know-how or something like that. This is what I draw from the myth. Genetically speaking, if I could put it that way, Eros is not just lack, right? It is intelligently oriented lack. It does bespeak a lack, but there's intelligence behind it, an intelligence that is working through or being channeled along a certain pathway. So in this sense, in Diatima's telling, it looks as if Eros is to be thought of as permeating nature. Nature is something like a stratified continuum of intelligently oriented lack. At the top of this continuum, in other words, that which everything lacks in some ultimate sense, is the divine, that which is not in any way lacking, that which is complete, self-sufficient, and in this uh, in this dialogue is identified as beauty itself. Everything in nature is in some way drawn out by the beautiful and ultimately by beautiful itself. Everything is seeking to fill up this lack with that which is recognized as the, the Greek word is kalos or kalon. Beautiful is a decent translation of it. You could even sometimes translate it just as the good or the noble. Uh, but we'll just stick with beauty for now, since that's what uh, the translation we have is using. I just want to note here that Eros derives intelligence from his grandfather. So intelligence is a generation removed from Eros. And I think partly what Socrates is suggesting to us in Plato through Socrates is that the whole of subhuman nature does not itself think but intelligence nonetheless permeates it, right? Otherwise there would be no order among natural things that are actually striving to possess what they lack, right? We see this in all of nature, things striving to possess what they lack. They get hungry, they seek food. You know, they, they uh, go hunting, you know, especially in animal nature, we see this most clearly. But we don't tend to think that they're actually deliberating and writing down plans and, uh, you know, getting into council together, right? Somehow intelligence is present to that process, but interestingly, uh, Diatima describes it as a sort of grandfatherly presence, right? It's a generation removed. Somehow intelligence is there, but it's really in the human being that Eros becomes or is present in a being that is self-conscious. So in some ways, we're beginning to get a hint of the continuity of the human being with the rest of nature. This is where I think you don't get a really dualistic reading of Plato here, right? We really are animals that have this erotic inclination in us, but we are also the ones that because of our own self-consciousness can undertake that deliberately even though we find ourselves, as Aristophanes points out, 
with desires that we ourselves did not create in ourselves, right? I have desires that are given to me. I didn't create my desire for the opposite sex. I didn't create my desire for food and all the other things in life that I seek. But nonetheless, by being present in the human, that that self-consciousness allows Eros in some ways to be taken hold of and oriented by our own freedom. So what does Eros do? If that's what Eros is, what does it do? How does it manifest itself in the world, right? If that's, to put this in more Aristotelian language, you might say, if that's the potency that Eros is, what is its actualization? How does Eros actualize itself in the world? That's Socrates' next lesson he learns from Diatima. To understand Eros better, we have to consider what does it do? What is its work or deed, its ergon in Greek? What's its function in the world? What is its effect in the world? How does Eros manifest itself in the world? Now remember, the young idealistic Socrates is learning this. And Diatima compels him to contemplate what Eros does at its primary level. In other words, in the sexual act. I want to look at a passage. If you have the text in front of you, uh, if you have it in uh, the the uh, Benedetti translation, this would be on, as I say there, 36 to 37. If you have another translation, we're looking at 206b, right around there. So right above this, at 206, end of 206a, we get that first initial definition of what Eros is. Eros is of the goods being one's own always. And Socrates, remember, this is a young Socrates who is Agathon-like, right? So he's an idealist, uh, and he's got these high conceptions of what a human being is, uh, and he has this tragic inclination to read life in terms of the rare and the excellent, right? Socrates says, what you say is most true. Because that actually sounds not too bad. Eros is the good being one's own always. That's awesome, right? Since Eros is always this, she said, then in what manner and what activity would the earnestness and intensity of those who pursue the good be called Eros? What, in fact, are they doing when they act so? Can you tell? So, young Socrates, if I could, then I should not, you know, in admiration of your wisdom, resort to you to learn this. I came to you to learn this, right? Well, I shall tell you, she said, their deed, ergon, their function, their activity is bringing to birth in beauty, both in terms of the body and in terms of the soul. Now, notice Socrates is the young idealist. What the heck do you mean? Right? That's in need of divination, and I do not begin to understand. So he's lost, right? Well, I shall speak more clearly. And now she's basically going to take this idealistic young man and force him to look at the lowest levels of the erotic phenomenon, right? Especially the way that bringing to birth in beauty in terms of the body, right? Because that's where she starts him with. Don't jump way ahead to trying to sort of give birth to great ideas and, 
give birth to governing cities or something like that. Let's go do the phenomenon that is recognized by everyone as erotic. All human beings, Socrates, she said, conceive both in terms of the body and in terms of the soul. And whenever they are at a certain age, their nature desires to give birth. But it is incapable of giving birth in ugliness, but only in beauty. For the being together of man and woman is a bringing to birth. This thing, pregnancy and bringing to birth, is divine. And it is immortal in the animal that is mortal. It is impossible for this to happen in the unfitting. And the ugly is unfitting with everything divine, but the beautiful is fitting. So kalone, beauty, is the moira, fate, and aletheia, for birth. It is for these reasons that whenever the pregnant draws near to beauty. Now, remember, we're talking about both men and women here, and I think that she first looks to the male side of the, the equation. Uh, whenever the pregnant draws near to beauty, it becomes glad and in its rejoicing dissolves and then gives birth and produces offspring. But whenever it draws near to ugliness, then downcast and in pain, it contracts inwardly, turns away, shrinks up, and does not produce offspring. But checking the course of the pregnancy has a hard time of it. So this is why someone who is pregnant and now she turns to the woman as well, with breasts already swelling, flutters so much around the beautiful, because the one who has the beautiful releases him from great labor pains. For Eros is not, Socrates, she said, of the beautiful as you believe. Well, what then? It is of engendering and bringing to birth in the beautiful. All right, I said. It is more than all right, she said. And why is Eros of engendering? Because engendering is born forever and is immortal as far as that can happen to a mortal being. From what has been agreed to, it is necessary to desire immortality with good, provided Eros is of the goods always being one's own. So it is necessary from this argument that Eros be of immortality too. I'll just stop there for now. But notice what she does. She forces this idealistic young man in a certain way to, to really pay attention to Eros on its bodily level and to see that in both the male and the female, the female more evidently in giving birth, right? What we usually mean when we talk about birthing, but also in the male who gives birth in the sexual act to something like an offspring, right? In both cases, the worker deed of Eros is bringing to birth in beauty. What is bringing to birth? What happens in birthing? Bringing to birth is a movement from the inside to the outside, from hiddenness to appearance. Birthing brings what is veiled into the open. What's interior is made exterior. So what birthing does is reveal depth, right? What lies under the surface can be brought to the surface. So Eros expresses itself from in the movement from interiority toward exteriority, from non-appearance to appearance, from the non-apprehensible to the, what can be apprehended. 
And in some ways, this is Socrates's read through diatima of the whole of nature, right? What is nature except expressivity? Nature is always birthing, right? This is what the word phusis means in Greek, which is the Greek word for nature. Phusis means birthing, generating, begetting, right? You probably can see that in our word nature, right? That the root of our word nature still has that connection to birthing, right? So nature is birthing. That's what it means to be natural, is to give rise and to show what is within in an exterior way. This is most evident, of course, in the case of birthing that we see with a woman giving birth, right? Notice it takes effort. This, this movement of expressivity is not some sort of mere phenomenological movement or some cognitive thing. Birthing takes work. Birthing is hard. It's laborious, right? I was going to bring in my uh, my wife to maybe do some show and tell with you or something. But maybe she would tell you it took a lot of work to get those eight little ones out. So there's a way in which we, when I talk about a movement from exterior interiority to exteriority, I also don't want to to skip the efficiency of this, right? The effectiveness of it, right? Birthing is a process that takes work, right? In some ways, Diatima is laying out a vision of nature with the human in particular as exemplifying nature in its fullness. But the human is something like the fullest expression of nature precisely in the ability to, to give birth laboriously to make what is interior exterior. And to do so is truly to exercise a certain agency and efficiency in the world, right? So bringing to birth and beauty is not some activity that's just ethereal or something. It's gritty, tough, hard, difficult. And this is something that you can start to see that uh, an idealistic young man who has a tragic inclination like Socrates maybe needed to really learn this. Right. He had to be he had to have his head sort of pushed down from the clouds into the grittiness of the necessity of the sexual and the, the labor that it all involves in bringing birth to human beings in the world. Uh, in a way, it's really telling uh, Agathon, who's listening to this speech, remember, like you need to pay more attention to Aristophanes. Right. There's something about the sort of dynamism of what uh, Aristophanes lays hold of that needs to be brought into your tragic inclination. So Diatima gets Socrates to focus on the very physical reality of birthing in the sexual act and its result. And I imagine the young Socrates was, as he tells Agathon, he was a little bit taken aback by this. He didn't expect to hear this from a priestess to get, you know, hey, buddy, let me make this clearer to you. I love the way she's like, okay, if you don't get it, let me make this a little clearer to you. And here's a little lesson on the birds and the bees, right? But somehow in seeing that in the lowest levels, you can begin to see that that account of Eros is present at every level of nature, right? You're starting to build a unified account of the human being as participating in the erotic at every level, beginning from 
the deepest inclination of any living being to carry on forever physically. Remember, we even saw that in the day anima, right? Right at the beginning, that this is at the heart of life itself, is this imitation of the divine. But as we're going to see, to begin to see that that same bringing to birth is a way to understand all human action in some ways, both that which is free and that which is not free. So we human beings, even though we're rational, experience this physicality. We experience the way in which our bodies and its activities and instincts are able to be effective in the world and even especially in the sexual act, even take over. And Diatima calls attention to this. Socrates has to realize that for him to understand himself, he has to see that this erotic dimension of his existence that he does not exercise full control of is nonetheless part of him. That's not a very tragic inclination, right? The tragedian wants to talk about the human being as in control, right? The hero who in a certain way can hopefully be in control. Although even that we've seen the tragedies doesn't always happen, right? But in, in, in the sexual act in particular, we experience the way in which there are at work in me, this is not someone else, this is not something other than me, I myself am, am participating in this bringing to birth and beauty, but my participation is such that the, the sort of uh, soul side of me, the intellect, whatever you want to call it, has to undertake and appropriate something that I don't exercise full control over and yet is nonetheless part of me. There is more to me than I control because there's a whole set of erotic phenomena that I have to recognize as mine in the sense that it belongs to me, but not mine in the sense that I control it. And so just to summarize that, this last sentence, right? In this way, Diatima is compelling this tragically inclined Socrates who wants to identify himself primarily with thought, excellence, virtue, all the higher things, to recognize and accept the comic dimension of Eros as equally a part of him, right? Do not skip over those uh, dimensions of your own existence that are truly yours, and as a matter of fact, are the very dimensions of your existence that are responsible for the fact that you exist at all, right? Both in terms of, you know, Two persons, a male and a female, having had these erotic inclinations to give rise to you, but also the fact that when you're a baby and you're desiring to eat unconsciously, as it were, you're nonetheless surviving precisely because of the presence in you of erotic inclinations to fill up these lacks that you have. And then slowly you begin to take control as much as one can of these of the erotic phenomena and inclination but all of that all that we do in our youth when we're not yet conscious and all that is still happening in our life that we're not consciously controlling like i ate dinner not too long ago my body is at work i'm working on these goods that have been provided to it right all sorts of inclinations are going on or activating themselves in my body that I don't control, but nonetheless are a part of 
who and what I am as a human being. Fourth phase, just to sum all this up, the ladder of arrows, scoping out the whole of reality. Now that we sort of, now that Diatima has pushed Socrates to the lowest levels of eros, and yet she's dealing with a student who is open to the highest levels of eros, now she has the capacity to lay out a whole, a whole ladder of eros that in some ways the human being expresses in himself. And this is where the philosophic dimension of Diotima's speech comes in. Why? Because the philosopher is the one who wants the whole, right? Not just the comic, not just the tragic, but both, right? I want both the lower and the higher in a full picture of the human being. All of nature now understood as erotically infused and erotically effective in the presence of the beautiful could be sort of laid out as what's often called a ladder or what I've called in another class, a stratified continuum toward what is divine, beauty itself. And this is what Diotima basically lays out, right? That these are the basic attractors of our fundamental, the entirety of this in some ways captures the human being in a stratified continuum that we're first attracted to the beauty of a single body, then the beauty of all bodies, then the beauty of laws and customs, the beauty of science and knowledge, and the beauty of philosophy, and all oriented towards beauty itself, right? And all of these levels of inclination and desire together constitute the full reality of the human being. This path upward is what she calls erotics, right? And Socrates, remember, at the beginning of the uh, dialogue says it's the one thing he knows is erotics, right? In the dialogues, just by way of a bit of a tangent, but it's not unfitting, but in the, in the dialogues, Socrates only tells us two things he knows, right? The one is the more famous one. I know that I do not know, right? I know that I lack, right? <laughs> And the other one he says is he knows erotics. And in some ways, I think we have to see that those are, those are the same things, right? Erotics and knowing that one does not know are in some sense the same, naming the same reality in him of that intelligently oriented lack that, that defines his being at every level of his humanity. Is that why Alcibiades later talks about how he was so... Um... You know, when everyone was, you know, when they're having hard times and they're campaigning, you know, Socrates, he's a master of self-control. Yeah. And so it, it's from that, that's, to me, that kind of is like where his, where he says like he's, a, that that's all he knows is because he has such great self-control. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the picture you get of Socrates from, is just amazing, right? He's just like this Superman, right? Yeah. Um and yeah, maybe that, that sort of what I say here, right, that you could also see this ascent as a sort of descent going inward or inside towards what is deepest in reality. So in some ways, if that's the case, then you can see that in, way, in a way you might say Socrates is, is the one man they know who has in some ways seen the full divinity in himself, as it were, right, has uncovered that which is, you know, we Christians might call it the Imago Day, but in some ways Socrates has tapped into 
that connection with the divinity in himself that gives him what looks like superhuman presence in the world, right? I mean, one way to read the dialogue is in part to say that Socrates is not God, but he is the he is the expression of God in finitude, right? What, what is the greatest expression of God in finitude is the one being in the world who wants it all, right? He's got the greatest desires of any human being who's ever lived because he wants it all. He wants beauty itself. He wants the good itself, but not in a way that leaves behind those other goods, right? It's not at the cost of them, but it's somehow seeing in each and every one of them that hint towards beauty itself that is at the heart of all of our desires. And so, yeah, I think Alcibiades looks at him almost as if uh, he's encountered something like in Imago Dei, right? There's the presence of someone who's beyond nature. We also get that in that, uh, you know, when he's walking and he gets caught up in this mystical moment. So there's these hints of Socrates representing something like uh, a divine-like being in the world. And in fact, he is described when you, or I should say Eros is described as shoeless, poor, ugly face. It's basically a description of Socrates. <laughs> Socrates is Eros itself in the world, right? And that's what Plato seems to see in Socrates is this incredible desire for all of being, you might say, right? He wants all of it, right? Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, Thomas Aquinas when he writes his treatise on the Eucharist and puts it in front of the crucifix and Christ says to him, um, you have spoken, written well of me, Aquinas. And uh, he says, what, would, what do you desire? And Aquinas says, only thyself, right? Like, well, that ain't much. He just wants the God man, right? Like he wants everything, right? There's something about, you know, you don't tend to think of Aquinas as the most erotic man, perhaps, but there is some deep eros in him, this desire that is unquenchable for the infinite. And in some ways, Socrates is in a pagan tone, I would say, but somehow Socrates through Plato is represented as similarly erotic, right? But I, you know, sometimes it's helpful to see this as an ascent. But when when you're with when you're thinking through a Platonic lens, it's also always important to see that every ascent could also be read as a as a descent or at least an inward movement, right? That we're not necessarily going outside ourselves so much as always deepening what's in us. So you could see that in some ways these levels are not going outside so much as getting it to a deeper and deeper and deeper apprehension of what we truly ultimately desire, namely the divine, right? So it starts with the human body and its desires. It gets formed in the habits, which are a kind of mix between the body and virtue and the intellect. It gets to knowledge itself, but maybe ultimately what I'm calling here the human heart, some deepest desire that's in us. But in some ways, each of those levels gets, expresses more and more fully what it means to be human. And the philosopher is the one who attempts to gather all of them together into a unified account of the human being. 
So you can really see in the symposium, and this is why I love this work, as I said, it really pushes hard against any dualistic reading of, of Plato, right? He's presenting an anthropology of, the, of man as in full continuity with nature, right? Except he does bring to the table intelligence that allows him to undertake more self-consciously his own erotic desires and even pursue things that are higher than himself, especially uh, the forms, or in this case, the form of forms, beauty itself. And just one last, one last way to sort of present this, right? Because when you, when you have Socrates' speech, in some ways it allows you to go back and see that in some ways he's contained everyone else, right? I'm not sure there's a one-to-one -one correspondence with that ladder that we just had, but there's a close to it, right? Phaedrus is sort of like, He's just attracted to one body, right? Pausanias seems to be attracted to, you know, bodies of a certain conventional sort. Eryximachus brings the science and Aristophanes and Agathon we've talked about. But in some ways, Socrates can include in his vision all of every good that has been articulated in any of the other speeches, right? And he's learned this from Diotima, who has somehow herself had this encounter with beauty that has allowed her to pass on this wisdom to Socrates. And a true erotics is one that doesn't um, isolate itself anywhere on this, but in some ways sees that erotics spans the entirety of everything that the human does. Which brings us to Alcibiades, and I'll end with this for the, the presentation point Part at least, um, Alcibiades actually calls attention to this. It's interesting what Alcibiades says. Alcibiades really puts his heart out there. Right? He really embarrasses himself a little bit, perhaps, but in vino veritas, I guess, sometimes we say things we might not have said otherwise uh, because we're drinking. But Alcibiades really captures this erotics of, of Socrates' sort of all expansive uh, desire in uh, his, his erotics. This is how he describes Socrates. He talks of pack asses, blacksmiths, shoemakers, and tanners, and it looks as if he is always saying the same things through the same things. Just sort of an interesting uh, description of the forms. And hence, every inexperienced and foolish human being would laugh at his speeches. But if one sees them opened up and gets himself inside them, one will find first that they alone of speeches have sense inside, right? So they're sort of fundamentally coherent, right? And second, that they are most divine and have the largest number of images and virtue in them and that they apply to the largest area, indeed to the whole area, that it is proper to examine for one who is going to be beautiful and good. And that, in a certain way, captures through the eyes of Alcibiades what I'm calling here a true erotics, right? A full erotics that, that maybe helps us to understand why Socrates teaches the way he does. Maybe he learned this from Diotima. You know, he's always starting with what seem to be such everyday, you know, examples, uh, as he says here, pack asses and, and blacksmiths 
and um, shoemakers and tanners and stuff. But all of that is for, for Socrates to get you in a certain way to push a little bit against your more movement towards the abstract and ideal and make sure that you have an account that starts all the way from the bottom and works itself up, right? And when you do so, you can begin to see that, at least in this account of reality, bringing to birth in beauty is a way of describing activity at every level, every level of human inclination, human action, both physical and intellectual, is a bringing to birth in beauty. Okay, so that at least gives us a sort of coverage of the whole. The one thing that I didn't really cover much was some of the other things that Alcibiades says, which uh, I'm happy to talk about and why he even crashes the party. And, and by why there, I mean, why does Plato put him into the story? What, what is he doing in this story? There is a way in which I think I mentioned last week, you could get to the end of Socrates' speech and just stop it there. But something's going on with the presence of Alcibiades that might be worth our talking about. Why don't we come back at 8.40? So whatever your clock says, maybe give yourself eight minutes and we'll be back. And at that point, I really just wanted to be a wide open discussion and hear what your thoughts are about what you read. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.